We make things so complicated sometimes, don't we? I remember when I was uh, 24 years old and was asked by my associate pastor, this was in Washington, D.C., uh, to make dinner for him and his family, so, you know, total of five people. And uh, I guess he had heard that something I had made for my friends, my fellow interns at the time, uh, was good, so he asked me to make the same thing. <laughs> the, funny I, the funny thing about it was I had no idea how to cook, really. Up until that time, my, re my regular dinner, at least when I was on my own, was, seriously, I kid you not, rice, canned tuna, and frozen peas. That's all that I basically ate. And so I insisted, when he asked me to make dinner for him, I insisted, you know, this is the pastor, one of the pastors. I insisted that he did not really want me to make dinner for him. But he was a pastor, right? So what could I do? So I cooked. I decided to make fried rice, and I prepped, and it was a disaster. I was basically just ad-libbing. As I talk about it, uh, I can imagine myself right now. I was basically ad-libbing, right, tasting, oh, this might taste good, so I'll throw that in. Now, if you're Gordon Ramsay, maybe, right, that's going to work. But for me, it was a failure. I was making it more complicated than it had to be. All I had to do was just go to a bookstore or go to the Internet and find a menu. I, I could have grabbed a dinner menu out of a book. I could have asked my friend there at the church who was a professional chef. I could have asked him to give me a menu, to give me directions. But no, I had to do it on my own. In short, the dinner was terrible. It came out looking like a giant clump of oatmeal and tasted about the same. It was all cooked in sesame oil, and you know, fried rice is supposed to be broken and you know, kept together, but this was literally just one big clump of rice. And in the middle of dinner, I kid you not, their three-year-old was in tears. In the middle of dinner, he went up to the dad, his name was Michael Lawrence, he went up to Michael, and <laughs> this little kid was crying, he was begging his father, do I have to finish this? <laughs> And inside, I was just laughing. I was just thinking, I told you. I told you guys. But all I had to do was just follow directions, right? But no, I complicated things. And it left at least one of them in tears. This morning's passage reminds us why it is important to keep the gospel simple. In our penchant to complicate things, it's obvious that people in general... Make things more difficult than they have to be. In fact, making things more difficult in relation to the gospel and how one is saved, we make it more complicated than it has to be, more complicated than even God designed them to be. So from our passage today, we see the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel. We look at two points. If you're taking notes, here are the two points. First... We see the simplicity in how one is saved in the gospel. How one is saved in the gospel. And then the second point, we see who can be saved in the gospel. So there's simplicity in the how and simplicity in the who. If you're joining us uh, for the first time, in the last couple of weeks, we've been in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Our associate pastor, Jason, uh, who prayed the pastoral prayer, he's been teaching us through the book of Proverbs. And for the next three weeks, so this week and then the next two weeks, we are back in the New Testament letter of Romans. We're just walking through the book of Romans. And this letter to the Roman Christians was written by Paul the Apostle in the mid-50s A.D. And the reason why he wrote to the Roman Christians there, even though he had never been to the church there, he did know some people of that church. The reason why he wrote to the church was because he wanted to encourage them in the gospel. So if you just simply, if you were to go home and read the entire book of Romans, you'll see, wow, he's actually laying out so clearly what the gospel is, the fundamentals of the gospel. He just simply holds them out to the church. And in, in doing so, he clarifies with the Roman Christians what they are partnering in. Paul, according to Romans chapter 15, you'll see there, he wanted to take the gospel to Spain where the gospel had not yet been preached. And so he wants to partner with the Roman Christians to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the ends of the earth, to Spain, where it had not yet been preached. And our passage today is found in a section of the letter, that is Romans chapters 9 to 11, where Paul addresses God's salvation that by God's design was to go to the ends of the earth, to go to the Gentiles, that's a word for non-Jews, 
not only the Jews, but then also to the Gentiles. But of course, there's this question, and this is what Paul addresses in Romans 9 to 11. Why is it that so many Jews don't believe? Why is it that so many Jews reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? And instead, they trust in their own righteous deeds as if one could actually have them. We see there that the Jews, in short, why were they not part of the people of God? It says there in Romans chapter 9, God simply did not choose them. And then it says in Romans chapter 10, Paul explains actually it's their sins, their sins. He lays them out so clearly. They are the ones who rejected God's grace in Jesus Christ. In short, they refused the righteousness of God in Christ's person, in his work, because they chose to trust in their own righteousness, the thing that they grasped after. They actually never achieved. Why is it? Look there at Romans chapter 9. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9 if you're not already there. You see there in Romans chapter 9, verse 32, it says plainly, why didn't they receive the righteousness they so desired? It's because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They were working for the righteousness. You look there at 10.3. Instead of believing on Christ and receiving God's righteousness by faith, they sought to establish their own. And so in their own supposed wisdom and knowledge, they damningly complicated what was beautifully simple. In our passage today, Paul reminds us of the simplicity of the gospel. Follow along there as I read chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, even though our passage today is 5 to 13. I'll go ahead and start in verse 1. Here Paul prays for his fellow ethnic Jews there, and he prays that they would be saved. Listen, listen now. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As we look at the simplicity of the gospel, we see first the simplicity in how one is saved in and through the gospel, in how one is saved in and through the gospel. This is in verses 5 to 10. Did you hear how simple it is to be saved in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ? You hear that in verses 9 and 10 specifically. It says there, these are beloved verses of many Christians. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, how you shouldn't hear these verses, you should not hear these verses as in saying, if I mouth the words, then I will earn my salvation, right? Mouthing the words, a confession, is not a work that earns salvation. Of course, whatever one confesses out of the mouth, it comes from the heart. So these are parallel things here. If you confess with the mouth, that Jesus is Lord, in other words, you, you, you genuinely believe it, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you should merge those concepts together, the confessing and the believing. You should also merge the concepts of Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. He makes it really clear in the verse after, verse 10, right? It's talking about the heart here. The heart is the real issue. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. But really, there's no difference, right? And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Being saved, being justified, it's the same thing. In much of Romans, Paul's been explaining that salvation from God or righteousness from God, I'm going to use those basically interchangeably, these things come not by doing, but by believing, by having faith in Jesus Christ. 
And it's exactly what is contrasted in Romans 9 and 10 in our passage here today. A righteousness that is based on the law. You saw that in verse 5. A righteousness that is based on the law. Versus, if you look there in verses 6 to 8, a righteousness that is based on faith. Now, Christians, this should be nothing new to you. But if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you might actually be surprised to hear that salvation is not based on the works that a Christian does. A common misunderstanding is that the Bible teaches that people earn their salvation based on their works. And so, therefore, you know, you might think that Christianity is all about doing in the hopes of that one day when you stand before God at judgment day, your good will outweigh your bad. You hope that you pray that. And so some of you might even be thinking that that's why you Christians do what you do. You think of a work of baptism, and so you get baptized, thinking that's what begins one's salvation. You might think of the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate every single month. We're going to celebrate it next week. We take the Lord's Supper, and therefore that is a work that contributes to our salvation, and we need to say our prayers. That's why you Christians say your prayers. That's why you read the Bible. That's why you stay away from sin. It's because we do these things, and therefore we earn our salvation. If we do enough good, then we're saved, and if not, we are condemned and go to hell. Well, If that's you, if you think that that's what the gospel is, what the Bible teaches, let me be clear that that is not what the Bible teaches. Salvation by works is not good news. It is never good news. In fact, it is anti-gospel. It is against the good news. It is actually bad news. If we just think practically for a moment, imagine if that's how marriage relationships work. You might be thinking... How, where is Jeremy going? Why is he talking about marriage relationship in relation to salvation? Well, actually, Christian salvation is very much about relationship at a fundamental level. Salvation, righteousness before God is really about what it looks like to be right with God. The one whom all people, all men and women have sinned against. We have rebelled against our one and only creator and Lord. But think about uh, relationships here. What would it be like if you went into marriage thinking, if I just do enough good, if I just please him enough, then he'll keep me around. Or then she will keep me around. But if I do bad, she or he is just going to kick me to the curb. Can you just imagine those marriage vows? Recently, many of us witnessed Ian and Peace get married. Can you just imagine if they turned up, or if you guys just imagine me turning up to that grand occasion of me and Melanie's wedding, and you heard this, I, Jeremy, take you, Melanie, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, based on certain conditions. If your better outweighs your worse, Definitely in your riches, let's be clear, but not when you are poor. When you are healthy, but we'll see about this sickness stuff. To love and to cherish till death do his part, if the conditions are met, and in those circumstances, I therefore pledge you myself. That's disgusting. What a toxic environment I'd be creating for my wife. Don't you agree? That's an environment where security where love and confidence are supposedly earned, but then could always be taken away. In that instance there, love, commitment, grace, and mercy, supposedly those things, are earned and never really known. I mean, that kind of, kind of marriage covenant is not good news, friends. That is bad news. That is absolutely terrible news that knows nothing of God's covenant love with his sinners, with his people who have repented of their sins and turned to him. It knows nothing of God's covenant love where he pledges his people, his very own son, to the death and to preserve them all the way until the end, all in the gospel. According to the Bible, right relationship with God or salvation or righteousness with God is granted. It is not earned as God enters into covenant with us. So, friends, just remember, right, if you're tempted to think like that, just remember the glories of Romans chapter 8. You guys remember the glories of Romans chapter 8? If, if uh, you weren't here for those series of sermons, you can listen to them online, or you could uh, read Romans chapter 8 this afternoon. It speaks there about all this security that we have and confidence that we have in the love of Christ. So just, just, let's just go over there, Romans chapter 8. We'll refresh 
our minds here. You look there in 8.28, right here we're talking about confidence in God's love. It says there 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together. And there when he talks about love God, don't think work. Think another word for Christian. That's another summary of what the Christian is. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now look over there at Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Salvation is not based on human works, but it is based, in fact, on the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Of course, this makes entire sense, if you're familiar with the gospel. Given all that Christ has done, what else is left but faith, belief, trust, reliance? All those words are synonyms there. What else is left but faith, belief, trust, and reliance on our gracious God who saves sinners? Salvation is based on faith in Christ and his work. There's a simplicity there in how one receives it. It is by faith in Christ's work, not in our own. Now, some of you guys are thinking, well, of course it is. It's obvious. How can anyone read the Bible and think otherwise? Well, if you know Christian history, maybe even your own experience, you know that there are a lot of people who actually reject this simplicity of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith. There are a lot of people who look at Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's divine intervention to save the unrighteous sinner, and they stumble over Christ and his work. Some of us have even come from these types of backgrounds, whether Roman Catholic, they definitely believe that salvation is not by faith alone in Christ alone. They want to add works to faith. You can think of uh, some of our own members, Seventh-day Adventists, who basically rely on their works of the law for salvation, even the Old Testament law. And some of us even have come from supposedly Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches, right? Evangelical churches that proclaim the free grace of God in Jesus Christ, but then you know that based on the church's teachings and maybe even the church's ministry, man, it sure feels like, at least, it sure feels like right standing with God comes by doing. And not simply by believing, trusting, throwing yourselves at Christ's feet and believing upon his work. Friends, there might even be some here today who continually feel the weight of the law upon you whether it be the Old Testament law or even a law that you've created in your own mind or the commands of Jesus Christ or the Word of God in general. You feel almost crushed by the weight of the law and your need, at least your felt need, of needing to keep it in order to gain good standing with Jesus Christ. Can you just stop for a moment? I mean, how many of us have felt this way? Whether because of the church's teaching, the false teaching, or whether just because we were unclear in the teaching. I mean, I myself have felt like this. In wrestling with sin over and over and over again, not really knowing how to combat it apart from my own works, isn't it so tiring? To know that once again, you have sinned. You feel exhausted needing to keep up this, the weight of the law to meet all of the, the requirements of divine righteousness, which is very clear. The requirements of the law is perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. We're going to explain why that can never be kept. But nevertheless, we, we want to upkeep it. And then for those of us who are so stinking tired, I mean, how does that evidence itself, this, this works righteousness, this self-righteousness, how does it evidence itself in public? Doesn't it then kind of bleed into or show itself in your hypocrisy? Aren't you so tired on the inside that when you come to even a place like this, you, you, you want to uphold that standard of righteousness so badly, at least in your own heart, that that's at least what you want to present to other people because you feel so bad when inside you know that that's not the way that you are. 
And then maybe after hypocrisy wears out, you fear. You have such a strong fear knowing that God is, in fact, over you, that His law does, in fact, require perfect obedience. And and we know that we are sinners, but yet we fear this Lord. We know that He is the Father, a loving Father, who gives us peace and access to His throne of grace and calls us to draw from it over and over again. But yet, for some reason, we only picture Him as judge and worse off, judge of those He loves. And then once we are so tired of that fear, what do we do? You guys have probably wrestled with this, right? You want to throw away the law. You want to throw away all of God's commands and then eventually throw away God of the commands. You abandon God and abandon the faith. Friends, if, if I've just described, if any bit of that has described you, friends, our passage here helps us. We're reminded of the simplicity of the gospel and how one receives the benefits of salvation and who receives the benefits of salvation And we can forego this complication here. We are helped to learn from the people that Paul is addressing. And he speaks here to the self-righteous Jews who use the law, once again, in effort to gain righteousness. The Jews, Paul says, by and large, rejected the simplicity of salvation in the gospel. And they opted for complication. They opted for complication, thinking that that's actually a better way to go. They opted for a righteousness, not based on faith, but as it says there in, in verse 5 there, based on the law of Moses. Based on the law of Moses. Of course, this law was the, 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 basically summarized in the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses is technically, technically speaking, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the law in general, you could say, is the whole Old Testament. But it's summarized more or less in the Ten Commandments. And they used this wonderful law and tried to earn righteousness. They used the law of God wrongly. Let's be clear. They used the law of God wrongly. They used it in effort to gain salvation instead of letting the law lead them to the Savior. The self-righteous Jews used it legalistically. They thought, I do, do, and therefore I get salvation. It is a misuse of the law. And you see, that that's exactly what is contrasted here in our passage today. <clears throat> you look there at verse 5, 4. I'm in the wrong chapter. Hold on one second. Verse 5 of chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on faith, <clears throat> that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, hear the contrast, right? He just talked about, talked about a righteousness that is based on the law. But then he contrasts that in verse 6. But the righteousness that is based on faith says... Now, let's pause one moment here. Let's pause one moment here. Uh, You guys, something really important to note is that Paul is not saying that Moses really taught a salvation by works. He is not saying that at all. He's not saying that in the Old Testament one is saved by works and then in the New Testament one is saved by faith alone. That's not what he's saying. Here, Paul is representing the false teacher's position. He's representing what they thought the law gave them. He's, he's, he's kind of entering into the false teachers there, the, the self-righteous Jews, right? Moses, they said, wrote about a righteousness that is really based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. He knows that that's false. He knows that people have gone astray that way. He knows that no one can fulfill the law's demands. He knows that the law exposes sin and is to lead other people to salvation in Jesus Christ. He knows all that, but here he's representing the false teacher here. They say, we live by the law. We gain righteousness by the law. And so he contrasts that, knowing that that's wrong. But the righteousness that is based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. There's a lot going on there in those verses. And it helps once again to see this contrast, the righteousness that is based on the law, supposedly, and then the true gospel, a righteousness that is based on faith. Once again, the self-righteous Jews thought the, the law equals life. That is bad. That is wrong. They had the law, but they missed one of God's intentions for the law. You look there in 10 verse 4. 
he's teaching us what the law is, right? The commands of God, particularly here for the Jews. We're talking about the Old Testament. He says that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verses 5 to 8 is just an explanation, if you wonder. Verses 5 and 8 is just an explanation of verse 4. How exactly is Christ the end of the law? How is he the end of the law? Or the goal of the law? Or a culmination of the law? Or the thing that the law pointed to? This is a correction here of those who believed that the law could lead to righteousness. What he does here in verses 6 to 8 is Paul goes back, and he, and he goes back to a time when Israel received the law, and he shows how Christ fulfills the law. Had the legalistic Jews understood God and his intentions for the law rightly, it would have moved them not to trust in themselves for their doing, but God in his giving. If they understood the law rightly, right, they would have trusted in God and his promises. And we see this in Deuteronomy. That's where he's quoting from. A few different passages from Deuteronomy. Uh, let's just go ahead and go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. By the way, if you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't seem to know where Deuteronomy is, that's entirely okay. If that's you, just go ahead and help your neighbor to get there. You can look in the table of contents too. Books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Levitical, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 9. I'll give you a little bit of background here on Deuteronomy. Israel, at this point in time, is standing on the cusp of the promised land. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives them basically sermons to prepare their hearts as they go into the promised land. Now, keep in mind, they had already been rescued out of Egypt. They already had sinned against God, right? God was bringing them out of Egypt, but still they sinned against God. They rather would trust in themselves and live by sight and not by faith in God, their deliverer. And so time and time again, in the book of Exodus even, you see them sinning against God regularly. But God in his grace was faithfully fulfilling his promises. Why is it that they were not in the land already? It says there, it's very clear in Deuteronomy 29. Go ahead and look there. We see the reason. It says there, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You see that? That's why they're not obeying perfectly. That's why they didn't obey God perfectly. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. But God in his grace was still going to fulfill his promises and bring them into the promised land. And to prepare them, God reminds them in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29 that they as a nation would receive blessing for obedience But then for disobedience, they as a nation would receive curses. But he says there that in a future day, in a future day, after you guys sin against God again, after you experience actually the national curses and blessing, God still says, I'm going to do something new in your own hearts. This is in chapter 30, verse 1. Go ahead and look there. And we're slowly approaching the passage that Paul quotes from. That's why we're kind of going through this, right? They disobeyed because they didn't have the right heart. But then God says, what does he say there? In chapter 30, verse 1, right? After the covenant curses and blessings come upon them as a nation, after they've been driven out to other lands way many, many, many decades in the future, verse 3 says that God will act to gather his people from the nations where they were scattered to do something that only he could do, not them, only God could do. In that future day, despite their sin, look at verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Can you imagine being sinful Israel standing right there, hearing from Moses divine revelation given to him by God and given to you? How wonderful it must have been to been the Hebrew people to receive the words of God, the commands of God. The promises, the hope. You receive God's promises. You receive God's plan. You receive God's law even through which we come to know God. And we hope in it. We trust in God. And so we strive to obey the commands of God. Right? It would have been a loving, gracious evidence of God's love to them. They would have rejoiced knowing as it says in Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14. Now this is where Paul quotes. Look there. They would have been excited knowing 
Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. For this commandment, think promise as well. Think prophecy as well. Think command as well. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. In other words, it's not above your comprehension. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us to bring it to us that we may hear it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Thinking back to Romans, thinking back to the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel, you see how this passage and in the gospel would have been a corrective to legalistic hearts. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, used to lay the foundation of the church. He knows that the day of promised circumcision, the day of new hearts, where God's people would love God with all their heart and all their soul, would be fulfilled and has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He knows that the righteousness that we need could never be gained by the law, but gained in what the law and the prophets testified to. Romans chapter 3. That is the revelation of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So friends, if you are searching for righteousness, what does this passage have to say with God bringing the righteousness of God, Jesus, near? It says there, look, if you want righteousness to stand before a righteous God, guess what? Romans chapter 10, verse 6, you don't have to perform some unimaginable feat to get it. You don't need to go up to heaven as if you could to bring it down for us because Christ has already come down. You don't have to go across the sea or to the abyss. Those were at times interchangeable words. You don't have to go down into the abyss to bring up this so-called righteousness because the righteousness of God has already appeared in Christ. God has raised him from the dead. Verse 8, righteousness is near you. Just as God's law was near the Israelites, God's promise was near the Israelites, so now is its fulfillment Christ is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart for those who believe. For those who believe is because Christ has changed your heart and unstopped your mouth. That righteousness is near. It is near because when we exercise faith in Christ and believe on his work, we are credited his righteousness. So it's it's amazing how Paul sees uh, Deuteronomy in light of God's plan of salvation, that what was promised there would in fact be fulfilled in Christ. And so he himself is working on this promises made, promises fulfilled, or promises kept understanding of the Old and New Testaments. As the law pointed to and was fulfilled in Christ, and therefore Christ is the fulfillment of the law, or the end of the law, as it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. In Christ, the righteousness of God has been revealed Therefore, Paul preaches Christ. And this righteousness is to be received by faith. Salvation in Christ and his work is, preached, is the preached word that calls for not works of righteousness, but faith. That's why it's called the word of faith, because it calls for faith there in Romans chapter 8. This is good news for all who believe. You don't have to go up to heaven and to earn your righteousness, to bring it down, or to go down or across the sea to bring it forward to us, because God has already done it. He's already accomplished it. And therefore, it is near to all who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, for one moment here. Actually, before I get to the one moment here, just know that point number one is long and point number two is short. Uh, So that way you won't freak out in point number two in regards to time. But imagine here the response of the self-righteous. Right, okay, you guys, we all probably struggle with self-righteous. Just step into the self-righteous shoes that maybe you have put away. How would you respond to God the Son come down, God the Son come up? I think you say, who needs all that God the Son stuff? This God the Son stuff come to earth to be all that I am not, to do all that I could not, if I can secure heaven's righteousness on my own. Who needs the Son of God? I got the commands of God, I'm good. Just think now about the Christian's perspective as we struggle with the same thing. I got the commands of God. I got the Bible. I'm good. I read my Bible every day. I say my prayers every day. The preacher tells me to 
lead my family in these things. And so I go ahead and do that. And the preacher tells me that we are to go to church according to the word of God. I do that. I even serve the church in different ways. This thinking totally, completely misses Jesus Christ, if that's all that it is. It sees Christ really as a stumbling stone. Who needs Christ when I got all those things to do? You, need, you don't need Christ, right, to do any of those things, Christian. You don't need Christ to do any of those things. And as we know, doing those things won't get you one bit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those things don't do away with sin. Those things don't break the power and the tyranny of sin, which only Christ can. Neither does it get us out of the pit that we dug for ourselves. I mean, why would we rely on our own works if our works is what got us in trouble? But this is where our passage helps us and rebukes us, frankly, in our self-righteousness. Here we are helped in the greatest way possible, not because we are told to ascend the ladder of heavenly righteousness, but because God the Son brought heaven's righteousness to us. For the proud, we are rebuked, frankly, as here the gospel kicks out that ladder for us to ascend to righteousness if we could, and we see our own inability. The law exposes sin. You remember that? The law exposes sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, Paul says earlier in the book of Romans, and so to the exhausted. If you were tired needing to keep up this law of righteousness, friends, in Christ you were given rest aren't you? He is the one who did everything. He didn't come to do everything so that you could join him in doing everything. He did it all. Friends, if you are a hypocrite, here, the beautiful thing is that the gospel calls you to live in the freedom of the gospel. And so we we live in the gospel and therefore we confess our sins to one another. We freely acknowledge, yes, of course we're sinners, just like the sinner that Jesus spoke about in his parable who beat his breast, looked down towards himself in shame, knowing that he had dishonored God. And he says, God, forgive me. That's so different than the self-righteous hypocrite who says, I've done everything. No, we, we have freedom to live before God and to confess our sin and live in the gospel. To the fearful, to the fearful, Here the gospel calls us to know and enter deeper into the love of the Father. Which is why Paul is so clear in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, that yes, Christians do actually know the love of the Father. Because of the Spirit, we therefore call out to Him, Abba, that is Father, loving Father. We go to His throne of grace where we draw grace upon grace upon grace, where we have no fear of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And friends, for you who might want to give up, for you who might want to abandon the commands of God and even God himself, isn't it amazing that we see here in the gospel God's determination to save sinners who have rebelled against him? And so he himself goes to such great lengths. The gospel calls us to trust not in our own obedience or our own works, but a trust in the work of the Father in Jesus Christ and a trust in his faithfulness not in our obedience church this is good news this is freedom from the demands of the law all because of the lord our deliverer god knows he already knows that there is none righteous no not one he already knows that those who claim to live by the law will actually die by the law god knows that we can never achieve salvation in our doing which is the whole reason why he sent help from heaven Praise the Lord. There is none righteous, so he sent his righteous son to live under the law, to fulfill the law's demands of perfect righteousness so that he would be the perfect sacrifice. And now, Christian, his righteousness is your righteousness. And you see how specific it gets. I mean, it can get so specific. We struggle with, let's say, the sin of lust or pornography. Praise the Lord that Christ's active obedience, he resisted at every single point where we failed. In his faithfulness to the Father, he succeeds where we had failed. I mean, isn't that the whole point of Christ? Well, there are many points there, but a big point of Christ going into the wilderness filled with the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God, is that he succeeds where we fail, don't we? He succeeds where Israel fails. He is the perfect son in whom we know sonship. 
all that God desires and demands of us in the law, he provides in Christ. Praise God. Where the law demands, Christ delivers. What simplicity there is in this gospel, isn't there? Simplicity in how one receives the benefits of the gospel, not through works, but by faith. It's very simple, actually. You think about Abraham. Paul brought him up in Romans chapter 4. It's very simple to Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. He drew near to the pagan man, Abraham. He said, you, I will bless. I'm going to give you my promises. I'm going to enter into covenant with you. And yeah, I want you to fulfill the the, uh, requirements of the covenant, but know that I really am the one who will fulfill the commands. God knows this is a problem that we would go astray, and so God himself pledges his eternal son for sinners. And as easy as it was for Abraham to trust in God to fulfill the demands of the covenant, so it is easy for us. All that Christ is and does, he does for you, Christian. And there we should be encouraged. Christ is what we could never be that is righteous. Christ dies on the cross bearing my condemnation and sin. Christ takes my place on the cross. And on the third day, God raises him from the dead, showing that payment was completed. As Christ is righteous, as he wins righteousness, now those who repent and believe in him are credited righteousness. So you don't have to go up. You don't have to go down. You don't have to do unimaginable feats because you can't. God does it all. So for you, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, this here calls you to trust in the gospel. Only by faith can you be saved. Faith in Christ and his cross work. So turn from your sins, friends, and you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be justified. You will be righteous. Christian, if you know yourself to be one who regularly kind of sneaks in the law through the back door, as one preacher describes it, I'm sure we all identify with that. We sneak in the law through the back door to fuel self-righteousness. Friends, this passage too calls us to the simplicity of salvation by faith in Christ. Perhaps one of the best ways, this is practical advice here, perhaps one of the best ways to return over and over and over again to the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ, is to practice confessing your sin. By practice, I mean really confessing your sin. Confessing your unrighteousness boasts in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It boasts in in Christ's righteousness and the grace of God given in Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about it. The more and more you acknowledge your own sinfulness, right, that we go down, that we are so depraved, the more we see the depth of God's love for us. You think about the practical, practical examples. Haven't you been encouraged by reading, for example, David's confession in Psalm 51? After he had committed adultery and murdered Bathsheba's husband, he confesses. Aren't we encouraged by his own confession of sin? That we see, wow, God's grace goes so far down, so deep. We see his mercy. We see his forgiveness that he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. You think about the forgiveness of the Ninevites, right? We know how sinful they were in general. You think about Paul prior to preaching Christ and believing on Christ when he was approving of the murder of Christians. We are encouraged. We see Peter, too, as he struggles with the fear of man so much that he obscures what it means to live in the gospel there. And we are so encouraged when God himself, where Christ brings Peter back into the ministry. I'm encouraged by by them and how God forgives them despite their sin so christian let me ask you how are you guys at confessing your sin in confessing particularities also of how you are not righteous in your flesh we probably all know what it's like to experience this fear in confessing sin right i find that i myself in the past and continue to do this and many others struggle with confessing their sin because it it involves acknowledging that we are not perfect it means actually exposing the truth about who we are but be is is being exposed really that bad is being exposed really that bad is acknowledging publicly what christ already knows really that bad 
And in confessing your sin, I mean, wouldn't you just be showing others that God's love is really that committed and that deep and that steadfast? Is that really that bad? Wouldn't you just be showing others just how powerful and pure the righteousness of Christ is? That the, the fact is that no sin committed by God's repentant people can override God's legal declaration of justified. Is that really bad, that bad? You realize, Christian, that in confessing your sin and trusting that Christ's blood covers it, you boast in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think about what areas you fear in relation to confessing sin. What stuff do you not want to get out? Chances are, friends, that you actually measure your own righteousness regarding or in those things. And that's the plumb line that you use to determine whether or not you're going to feel good that day or not. And then based on how well you're doing, then you're confident. And then based on how poorly you're doing, then you feel like junk. If that's you, you are self-righteous. That's all of us. And if there is this fear, friend, you need to learn to live in the freedom of the gospel. Our passage invites us to live in the freedom of the gospel. That Christ truly has set us free and that your Father in heaven, if you are a Christian and have repented of your sins and believed on Him, your Father loves you like any good parent would when they see their child going astray and wanting help. Let me encourage you to find a trusted Christian friend in this congregation, one that you trust, one that you know loves you, and just confess your sin and get to Jesus as you do. Because you could confess your sin and just acknowledge how bad you are. That's not Christian confession. Christian confession, friends, turns to the wonderful forgiveness of Christ in the gospel. Right? It helps us see that what generates true repentance is the faithful love of God in the gospel to forgive all sins, even the worst of sinners. Can you imagine if we were all doing this, right? Everybody around us would come to know, wow, your God really does save all sinners who turn from their sins and trust in Him. Well, that's a point, isn't it? At least part of the point. The simplicity of the gospel is seen not, in, not only in how one receives the benefits of salvation, but in who receives the benefits of salvation. That's point number two, and definitely shorter. Friends, you realize that if when you make Christianity all about the standard that you feel you have to keep, the standard that you want to keep in your flesh, you tell others, you evangelize others with the false hope that only those who do the things I do get saved. To the Jews who rejected Christ, salvation is through the doing of the Jewish law, and therefore i got to be a Jew and fulfill these commands, the doing. But when we live our lives in Christ and in His saving and empowering grace, we testify to the fact that God saves all, everyone who believes. This salvation in Christ, as verse 11 says, is for everyone Who believes? Verse 12, there is no distinction in ethnicities, no distinction in social status by implication, no distinction at all between male and female in relation to who is actually saved. For the Lord is Lord of who? Right there. Who does he bestow all of his riches upon in verse 12? It is all, all who see their need for Jesus Christ. And you see this wonderful climax there. Verse 13, it comes out of Joel it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, you see how much is at stake in holding out the true and simple gospel? It's the salvation of souls. To complicate the simplicity of the gospel actually puts souls in jeopardy. The God of the gospel is clear, though. As 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, all by God's grace and His doing. So to conclude here, thank God that all we have to do is come to Christ, right? That is what the gospel says. So if you think that you need to clean up your act to come to Christ, friends, God invites you now to come to Christ. He is the one that cleans up your act in Jesus Christ. Praise God. He is the one who credits you his very own righteousness. And so we stand here, not 
perfect, not at all. Not working towards more perfection, not at all. But God sees us as justified, though sinful, at the same time. We see the simplicity of the gospel, both in how one is saved, that is, by faith in Jesus Christ, and who can be saved through the gospel, that is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who believes on Him will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your cross work. We thank you, Lord, that you are everything we need to be that is righteous. We thank you, Lord, that you give us everything we need that is righteousness. And so, Lord, we, along with Paul, boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we boast in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that it is that simple. We thank you, Lord, that all we have to do is see that you have, in fact, drawn near to us. How much more plain can it get than in the Son of God hanging on the cross, saying, it is finished and calling all to find rest for our souls in the Lord. God, what great hope there is in in your work. We pray, Lord, that where we might strive to work for our own righteousness, we pray, Lord, that where we might be proud, where we might be tempted to earn our righteousness, Lord, we ask that you would rebuke us in your love, that we wouldn't make much of ourselves, but that we would make much of Christ, his con ascension, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Lord, what great love is this that you have so lavished upon us and called us to be your children in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your pledge of love in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we confess all we have is Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.